Ybor City in Florida is a beautiful place. It's a prime example of what makes America great. If you walk down 7th Avenue, you will be immediately struck by the warm French Quarter style buildings. And within these buildings reside a symphony of diverse restaurants and stores which serve a melody of their best foods from their own cultures. Beyond the French-style buildings, with their hanging balconies, you'll be met with a massive brick building with strong white columns. This is the Italian Club. It almost looks like an alien stole a building from the Northeast and plopped it right there. However, the main reason people go to Ebor is for the beautiful Cuban culture. Cuban restaurants and, of course, cigar shops line the streets of Ebor. On almost every mural, Cuban heroes are painted. The most striking and controversial part about Ebor is the 0.14 acre part, which is not American land. It belongs to Cuba. It is called Jose Marti Park. The park is named after the man who some consider the father of an independent Cuba. In the late 1800s, Jose Marti could be seen on 7th Avenue rousing Cuban immigrants for Cuban independence from Spain. But why is Jose Marti so revered in Ebor and in Cuba? Well, let's dive into Jose Marti. Episode 15, The Master Weaver. In the 1700s, Spain's colonial empire was rotting. Years of mismanagement and unstable government in Spain had left Pax Española a shell of its former self. Yet, within that shell was a gem, a place known as the ever-faithful island, Cuba. Cuba earned that name because while all the Latin America countries were revolting against Spain, Cuba remained faithful for Spanish rule. Cuba was a gem to Spain because of their cash crops. However, Cuba had a horrible addiction to one of those crops, which was sugar. Sugarcane was the world which everything else revolved around for Cuba. And with sugarcane came lots and lots of slaves. Between 1750 and 1850, Cuba would gain a million slaves because Spain imported them in tax-free to boost exports. And even when they agreed with the British to stop the African slave trade, they did little to stop it on Cuba. And these slaves were primarily used on the horrible sugar plantations, which as we know from our podcast on Solomon Northup, are not good places to be. The average lifespan for one of these slaves was about seven years. In addition, the planter class on Cuba thought they had it all figured out. They thought that slaves only needed three to four hours of sleep a night. Cuba's addiction to sugar deepened in 1791. When 90 miles away on the sugar plantations of Haiti, the slaves revolted. Before this, Haiti 
was the king of sugar, with Cuba laying way behind it. However, soon demand for sugar shot up all across the world because Haiti was no longer producing it. And the country who would meet that demand was Cuba. But since their current capacity couldn't meet that demand, they solved that by importing more slaves to handle the demand. And besides getting the planter class of Cuba extremely rich, the Haitian Revolution gave the planters nightmares. Constantly in the back of their mind, the idea of a slave revolt like Haiti loomed. They knew they were playing with fire. Because on one hand, they were getting rich, but on the other, they made way for their own destruction. And eventually, Mosi Island would convert to sugar. On the western side of Cuba, this was pretty much entirely sugar plantations. While on the east, which was a little more of the poorer side, they retained some other crops, like tobacco, and there were even some cattle farms. So, if we keep on with this metaphor that Cuba had an addiction to sugar, then Spain would be their enabler. Obviously, the more sugar Cuba produced, the more Spain got to tax. In addition to the planter class, Spain was seen as a shield against Haiti 2.0. Eventually, though, in the 1800s, part of Cuba was getting tired of Spain. They looked over at their trading partner, the United States, for annexation. Now, Cuba has always been kind of like the girl next door for the United States. From its founding, guys like John Quincy Adams and Thomas Jefferson wanted Cuba. And in the mid-1800s, Cuba was looking extra attractive to Southern Americans because they needed another slave state to balance out the powers between South and North. But Spain had an ingenious counter-move for annexation. They bluntly said that if the island sued for annexation, Spain would emancipate the island, which would make Cuba's elite nightmare of Haiti 2.0 come true. So obviously, in the 1800s, Spain was not looking too hot for Cubans. However, the event which would cause Cuba to chafe under Spain's yoke even more, was the Panic of 1857, which decimated the eastern side of the island particularly, specifically the coffee planters. In addition to the Panic, Spain imposed crazy new taxes on the island and high tariffs. If you were to sell something, 25% of all profit was taxed, which drove the eastern planters into ruin. This was too much for them. The weight of Pax Española was too much. The blame for the East economic hardship was on Spain. Their lives were ruined by taxes which they had no say in. And on October 10th, 1868, Spain's yoke became too much for Eastern Cuba. In the spirit of revolution, they threw it off. Thus, Cuba took a first step in the long road to freedom that some might argue continues till this day. October 10th started what is known as the Ten Years' War. A group of eastern elite planters kicked off this rebellion. From the start, there were some big issues with their revolution. 
First, there are no real, clear goals. They kind of wanted abolition, but a very gradual one. Uh, they wanted less taxes and a representative government and a suffrage for Cubans. However, they were stuck in a paradox. Because slaves represented over 30 to 40% of the island, they needed them to win this fight. However, they still clung to that fear of a slave uprising, which led them to make some very dubious promises to the slaves they, air quotes, freed. The leaders of the movement used terms like liberty and freedom to proclaim their aims. And there was some very, very fine print to that liberty and freedom if you weren't white. One of the leaders of this movement was Cespedes, who prided himself on freeing all his slaves. But even he said in private that they were not yet ready for freedom. They would only learn how to use freedom through the war. And Ada Ferreira, an expert on race relations in this time in Cuba, said that most Western white masters who expressed this sentiment did it to keep a boundary between white and colored. They made their freedom somehow more intelligent or more powerful than what the slaves had. In addition, she wrote that within this rebellion, in response to the emergence of powerful colored leadership, some whites withdrew from the revolution and spat at the sight of what they thought was corruption within their movement. They would also get upset when slaves, whom they preached these ideas of liberty to, bought into it more than them and started evolving it into something greater. Now, that's not to say that everyone in this revolution was scared of radical change. These people wanted to overturn social racism in the country. A theme that would start to bubble was a raceless revolution. A revolution for every person in Cuba. But this would not be mainstream thought until the Cuban War of Independence later. So, as we can see, this revolution was fractured at the core. The planters needed slaves to win the revolution, and the slaves needed freedom to want to fight for this revolution. And as we saw, white leadership was extremely hesitant to treat the newly freed slaves as equals. So, when the army went around and emancipated these slaves, the slaves weren't put in the fighting ranks. They were free from slavery, but not from work. They were put to do manual jobs in the army, and some slaves felt like they were lied to when the army recruited them on the basis of liberty and freedom, and yet here they were still doing manual jobs. This hurt the cause for many reasons. For freedmen of color on the island, it showed that their fellow revolutionaries did not view them as equals in their fight. Second, it made slaves less likely to buy into their cause. It also broke out fights and arguing within the army. Worst of all, even after they were told they were free from slavery, these revolutionaries started treating them like slaves through punishments. Overall, the racism would corrode the revolution. Why would they want to support a movement that essentially just put them back in the same position they were in as slaves? Another interesting facet of this revolution was the way they treated the western side of the island. Now this rebellion wasn't widespread across Cuba. 
it was mainly contained within the eastern side. The army refused to march into western side of the island. Louis Perez, one of the leading historians on the Cuban history, said that if they invaded the west, the movement would truly transform into a revolution because the west was the lifeline of Cuba. It was the heart of the sugar territory. But again, this was a fractured rebellion with not so clear aims. They thought the west would rise up with them if they left them alone. There is also the facet of if they went in the west, they would be freeing large amounts of slaves since the west was the most densely populated with slaves. Which brings us again back to that idea of the Haitian nightmare. However, the Western Cubans looked over at what seemed like their deranged cousins who wanted a Cuban nation for all, because Spain would use race to convince them that this revolution was exactly what happened in Haiti, with African savages running across the eastern part of the island. Spain's most powerful weapon during this time was race, and they used it to divide the Cubans. In all, the Ten Years' War went slow, and the advantages switched from both sides constantly. Yet, the divisions of race led the revolution to its defeat. They could not accept the social revolution, which might have brought victory. They could not look at the former slaves as brothers in Cuban nationhood. So, after ten years of war, the Pact of, forgive my pronunciation, San John was signed. The people who still believed in a Cuban nation for all were exiled, and the others made up what would become the Autonomous Party, where they chased pipe dreams of reform without social revolution. And lastly, the Spaniards formed the Constitutionalist Party. Yet, for those Cubans not exiled, things must have looked optimistic. Like, something would change. But, in fact, things wouldn't really change all too much. The post-war economy was abysmal. Because of the war, they lost about 20% market share in the world on sugar. Spain also pushed the war cost onto the island through taxes and tariffs, and bank runs became a thing in the late 1880s. Some cities couldn't even pay their electric bills. And most importantly, for my city of Tampa, cigar manufacturing moved here. So, what started as a great fire of revolution smoldered into a heap of ashes. The coals were still burning, though. The exiles never stopped working for their dream of a free Cuba. And there was one man who knew how to stoke the coals slowly into one of the greatest fires in the Caribbean. That man was Jose Marti. Marti grew up seeing the dysfunction of the Ten-Year War. He saw how no one was on the same page of what exactly the revolution was fighting for. When he came onto the scene, he needed to take that blurred, fractured picture of Cuban freedom into a bright, vibrant painting that all Cubans could get behind. He told his fellow revolutionaries that revolution was not a quick flare of emotion, but a process which needs to be thought out and detailed to succeed. He told the Cubans 
that race was a tool used to divide them. And what he offered people was not only a revolution against Spain, but a revolution against the prominent logic of racism of the day. In all, Marti brought this vision of Cuban freedom into full focus. No longer would they suffer from disagreements on what they were fighting for. Race would not divide them. Marti would manage to join all classes and races together into a common cause. All Cuba was called to action. They were fighting for Cuba, for the common man. Luis Perez puts it perfectly, saying, quote, Like a master weaver, Marti pulled together all the separate threads of Cuban discontent, social, economic, political, racial, historical, and wove them into a radical movement of enormous force. End quote. And on 1891, Marti founded the Cuban Revolution Party, cementing a new era in the fight for Cuban independence. Perez also states that Marti turned what had been previously a revolutionary movement into a true organized party. In addition, Marti had a grave warning for his party. He warned them not to poke the bear that was the United States. He told them that to change masters is not to be free. And that most of all, he said the coming war would need to be quick, so quick that the United States could not get involved. And luckily for Marti's new party, that war was looking to come soon. Things in Cuba were looking grim. While things started off well in the 1890s, in 1894, it hit the fan. And what hit the fan was, guess what? A new round of tariffs from Spain, which led to hard times, which was very similar to the last pretense for the last revolution. Reform had clearly failed. Spain basically still controlled all the politics on the island. They were obviously still imposing crazy tariffs. So the autonomous party experiment had failed miserably. The hard economic times in the East was the perfect moment for 10-year war exiles to make their grand entrance back into Cuba. Which, soon, the flame of Cuban freedom spread across the East. It spread so quickly due to Jose Marti, the master weaver. This was not a revolution started by the elite planters. This was a revolution started by the common man. Maximo Gomez, a general in the army, said that this revolution was not from the top down, but from the bottom up. It was in this war that white, colored, were welded together as one through war. Yet, one of the most important reasons for this was because Marti brought this idea that race was patriotism. When someone started to be racist, they wouldn't just say, hey man, don't be racist, but they would call them out for being unpatriotic, which had a way more powerful impact than the way it was handled in the past. And Marti would have one more act to give this Cuban revolution. When he led a suicidal charge 
into a well-defended Spanish position in the first battle of the war. He laid himself on the pyre of revolution, sacrificing himself to set an example that a free Cuba was worth dying for. And soon, Jose Marti's fire grew even bigger when the Cubans invaded the sacred western half of Cuba. And I mean this in the metaphorical sense and physical sense of the word fire. The Cubans burned the property of all who opposed them. Elite planters would have to hire their own personal armies to defend their plantations. Maximo Gomez has some pretty, pretty intense quotes about the invasion of Western Cuba. The first one saying that, quote, Burn the hive to disperse the swarm. And then when referencing finally getting to march into the West, he said that the war didn't begin in the past, it began now. Revolution was burning across Cuba. The ever-faithful island looked to be lost. So naturally, they called in a fireman, who happened to be an extremely cruel and inhumane fireman. His name was Whaler. He was placed in charge of 200,000 Spaniards to put out the fire. However, instead of trying to put out the flames with water, he decided to douse it with gasoline. While the Cuban army went after elite planters and Spaniards, Whaler would strike at Cuban peasants. He burned their homes and then forced them into concentration camps, which were horribly mismanaged and led to epidemics and hunger, leading to lots of death. The war had changed. This was not your average European war of two glorious armies marching out to a field to duke it out. It was Cubans attacking the elite and the Spanish attacking the poor. The island was destroying itself for control. Then finally, in 1897, one side caved. The planters lost faith in their Spanish friends. And once those planters lost faith, the war was essentially lost at that point. In the following year, the Cubans would gobble up the countryside while the Spanish retreated into provincial strongholds. Yet, as the war seemingly came to a close, while they were all fighting for that vision Jose Marti had weaved together for them like a weed, racism popped back up. Soon, black officers were replaced because they were deemed uncivilized. Men who fought tooth and nail for a Cuban nation were replaced by officers who had not even fought because they were deemed more civilized and also happened to be white. In one case, a man who had spent his entire life dedicated to the cause lost his post to a man deemed more civilized and again just so happened to be white. To hurt Jose Marti's vision even more, in the same year, his nightmare about the United States started coming true. Marti's revolutionary fire had spread from Cuba over to the United States. All around, Cubans went mad for a desire for Cuban liberty. Then President McKinley asked Congress for power to intervene between Spain and the Cuban people. Some in the United States 
were wary of intervening in another country matters. So, they passed the Teller Amendment, which would stop the temptations of the United States annexing Cuba. However, Cubans were still wary of United States intervention, and they had every right to be. What was weaved together masterfully by Jose Marti was quickly unraveled by the United States. Marti's revolution quickly turned into United States conquest. They came onto the scene and immediately started taking credit for any victories. When the American soldiers landed on Cuban shores, thinking it was quite strange there was no Spanish resistance, which was because the Cubans cleaned out the Spaniards defending the shores, which saved the Americans from the horrors of amphibious landings. Then, when over a short few months, the Americans stomped the already kind of half-dead Spanish army, they thought to themselves, hmm, this is so easy. Why, why didn't the Cubans just win this war years ago? And the answer to that involved United States racism glasses. Looking around at the Cubans whose skin color was vastly different, the Americans thought the only reason that the Cubans didn't win the war in a few months like the Americans was because they were a savage race, unfit for self-government. Finally, in addition to seeing the Cubans as savages, the Americans viewed them as indebted to them for the Americans doing all the hard work while the Cubans sat back and smoked their cigars. So, in order to teach these lazy savages about self-government, the United States passed the Platt Amendment, which basically said, Whoa, whoa, whoa. I think we got caught up in the Teller Amendment, which I think we need to intervene here. So, the United States basically made Cuba a quasi-colony, without actually calling it a colony. In all, Jose Marti was right. The Cubans had just changed masters. They were still not free. I wish there was a happy note in this story on, but history doesn't always end well. However, that still doesn't change the massive accomplishment of Jose Marti's leadership. He took a dysfunctional movement and organized it into something all sides would believe. He took two sides and got them to see a shared vision of Cuban independence. Whatever race you were, Jose Marti united them all under the idea of a free Cuba for all. And lastly, Marti set the example for all Cubans to follow by paying the ultimate price for the vision which they all bought into. But since recording this podcast, I did find a happy note to end it on. When over the weekend, the people of Ybor marched against racism. They marched against the same type of inequality Jose Marti preached about. It seems the spirit of Jose Marti still lives on in the city. In his words, revolution is a long, detailed process, not a flare of emotion. The process, which Marti refers to, is still ongoing to this day.